Welcome to the Rock Community Church uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Rob Selleck, and it's a privilege and, as always, an honor to spend this time with you. Um, <clears throat> Pastor John uh, had surgery on Tuesday. He had a complete knee replacement, and he got to come home Thursday, and he's doing great. Um, he said he's actually quite surprised by his mobility and his pain tolerances and how it's all going with recovery and the amount of pressure. I guess they start slow with it, but uh, he's... Uh, optimistic actually uh, with how it's all going so praise the lord for that because he's home now and everything we got to make sure we keep k in our prayers uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah it seems to be done going really good so welcome uh so far it's just been a wonderful uh morning here so look forward to this time a guy as many of us guys and gals was going to start a diet Right? We're all there. That, that day, that first day of starting the diet, kind of seems exciting what we're going to accomplish in this diet. It was his first day, and he knew what his uh, problem was with eating. He just liked snacks and treats and sweets, kind of like me. And uh, so today was the day, though, he was going to start disciplining himself and follow this diet, which was basically cut the treats out. And as it always goes, the day that you start the diet... He had to go downtown. Going downtown, though, required that he went past his favorite little bakery. It's the mom and pop little bakery that kind of the whole family goes to, everyone enjoys. It's a treat to get a treat at the bakery. And he's saying, oh, why? So he prays, God, I just started this diet. Today's the very first day. Now I have to go downtown. I have to pass this bakery. Please help. Please give me strength. In fact, what I'll do is I won't stop unless, unless there's a parking spot right in front of the bakery. If there's a parking spot, I'll stop. But other than that, I'm just going to keep on going. I'm not going to stop. I won't have any sweets. So he gets down there, and sure enough, there's a parking spot right in front of the bakery after he's went around the block seven times, seen. And right, that's kind of how we are with this subject we're going to be dealing with, temptation. We know what we're not supposed to do. We really know what God wants us to do. We know what's best for us and what we should stay away from. But man, it's so appealing. Give me strength. Help me through this as I swirl around it over and over again. Thinking, oh, and here sometimes we find ourselves in the parking spot, right in front of the very thing we're trying to avoid. Temptation, it's, it's really quite an interesting topic. It's something that wouldn't... Uh, be so tempting if it just wasn't so tempting. There's a saying, I can resist anything but temptation. We can define this word, the act of enticement to do wrong by the promise of pleasure or gain. The act of enticement, the draw to do something wrong by the promise of pleasure or gain. Now, I want to start off by saying that we will not be effective as Christians if we do not learn how to deal successfully with temptations. And I think learning about temptations, where they come from, why do we have them, it will help us overcome the topic. In essence, once we know the truth about temptations, they might not be so tempting. But the fact is, there isn't a day that goes by that we are not tempted in some way. Temptations come in many forms. We're tempted not to tell the truth. We're tempted to take something that doesn't belong to us. 
to take advantage of someone, to simply gossip, to overeat, tempted to hold a grudge. That one almost feels good sometimes to do. Tempted to withhold from the Lord, which is rightfully His. The truth is, temptation is everywhere. Maybe spend a moment thinking about, what is mine? Think about, how do you handle it? Do you struggle with it? You can even go deeper. Is, if there's anything that can be done that can help you win that struggle. I mean, is it even possible to be successful to resist temptation? And I'll tell you, the Bible tells us it's an emphatic yes. There is. Turn with me, please, to the book of James. New Testament, kind of in the back, Hebrew, James, First and Second Peter. We're going to take a look at this issue in James chapter 1, verse 13. So you're turning there. Let's go ahead and open up the service in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you praise as we sung this morning where we are in debt and we are thankful for what you've done for us, for making us worthy, for loving us. Lord, our desire this morning is to hear from you. So if there's anything that might be in our mind or our spirit or our heart that would take away from that sensitivity to be able to discern what you would have for us this morning, Lord, we want to turn it over to you now. We want to come before you eager and hungry and willing. Speak to us, Lord. Take away any distractions. Ultimately, Lord, so your name can be glorified. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, James chapter 1, verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he, is t- uh, when he is tempted. Now we can stop right there. We don't have to go all too much further. The first thing we can learn about temptation is that we ought not be surprised by it. The first step is to take a step of preparation. If we're successfully going to handle temptations, we must accept, uh, expect it. That it's going to come. Notice James says, when he is tempted. It does not say if he is tempted. So we should never be surprised by temptation. I mean, it is, it is universal. Everyone is tempted. In fact, if you meet somebody who says they are not tempted by anything at any time, there's one conclusion you can come to about that person. That they are dead. Only dead people are not tempted by temptations. The moment we enter in this world, we are drafted into this lifelong battle of temptation. They're the common experience of every human being, regardless whether it's Christian or non-Christian. And we need to understand at the outset that as Christian soldiers, there's no sin in being tempted. No one can eradicate these types of enticements, but we are responsible for our reactions to them. So don't be caught off guard. Second, don't be confused. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So the next step in handling temptation is to understand where does temptation come from? And no, it's not normal for people to accept blame of their own sinfulness. It's not something we like to do. We like to put the blame not here, but man, if I messed up, if something's going wrong, put it somewhere else. And we say these terms that we like to relate to kids, right? Kids make excuses. Like, I didn't do it. 
It wasn't my fault. You don't understand. Let me give you more context. But the reality is adults do it just as well. Accepting full responsibility for our weakness and temptation is not something that's all that fun to do. And we've become pretty good at blaming everyone but ourselves. This blame game is not really something that is trending up in our society now. It's not something that's new. In fact, this blame game goes all the way back to the very beginning, the very beginning at the Garden of Eden. If you go and look at Genesis chapter 3, and I always find it interesting when you look at the Bible, I mean, how big this book is. This is written to us, right, for our instruction. And you look at the very beginning... Earth was created, we were created, in like half a page. We barely make it into like a page before we mess up. And the rest of the book, man, we're in this state of sinfulness. And in Genesis chapter 3, this is already after the fall and the sin. They were confronted by God. If you want to look, I'll read it. It's chapter 3, verse 9. God speaking says, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. I mean, think about it. He never did that before. Why do you do it now? He participated in sin. Now Adam was afraid of facing an infinitely holy deity, so he's hiding. And God said to him, verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? I mean, poor Adam. Now all of a sudden he had this self-consciousness that he never had before. So God asked him a question, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Pretty direct question, right? All Adam had to do at this point was say, yes, I did that. But what's he say? (laughs) The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. I mean, whose fault is it? He suggests the woman. I mean, after all, here here Adam is. is He's in his bachelor garden. Everything's going fine. He goes to sleep one night, never have seen a woman before, and he wakes up the next morning married to one. Didn't even know what a woman was. But really, the real issue here is he's not just blaming Eve. This is the statement. The woman whom, what? Oh, you gave me. Whose fault is it? It's God's fault. I mean, after all, God, you could have picked any woman you wanted. Why would you pick her? Why would you make a woman who would do that anyways, God? It's interesting how creative we can be. Verse 13 goes on. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, Oh, I did it. I'm sorry. Nope, same thing. Says the serpent deceived me and I ate. I am a victim just like my husband of something you created. I mean, I was in this wonderful garden, really enjoying myself, and this snake showed up, the snake you created. And and who made it talk, anyways? Not I. And the blame is placed on God, and in essence, it's been so ever since. God made me, and He made me with my my sinfulness, he made me with my circumstances, my situation, he put me in this marriage, my surroundings. He created the whole scene. It's not, in essence, my fault. And it's very common to place the blame of our sins elsewhere, whether it's our parents, our spouse, our children, our boss, 
And James is saying, man, that's a terrible thing to do, especially to blame God for your sin. But unfortunately, it's the tendency of our fallen flesh. We want to shirk that responsibility for our behavior, even if it means going so far as blaming God. And remember, we're all tempted. We all sin. He's just saying, don't blame God. Even though you can tie it to your circumstances, your weaknesses, your tendencies, your surroundings, your friends, your relatives, the list can go on. Your economic condition, whatever it is. James 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God to think that is faulty thinking. See, unless we understand the real source of our temptation, we'll respond to it incorrectly. And God is not the author. In fact, he has no capacity in his holy nature that would make him vulnerable to evil. Chuck Swindoll, a pretty famous pastor, maintains that the literal translation of this would be, don't even remotely suggest that God has anything to do with your temptations. So literally, when we're on the path of this continued temptations, right, when we're at the point where we're nearing the brink of yielding in, man, it's easy to say that. God kind of put me here. Kind of to see ourselves as the poor victim of God's providence. He's allowing something to take place. But now it goes on and says, God can't be tempted by evil. Literally, he's not experiencing evil. He has no experience of evil, no capacity, or no vulnerability to it. It all repulses God. It finds no place in his holy character, infinitely apart from a holy God. And because of that, it makes it impossible for God ever to be tempted. And because of that, it would be impossible for him to ever tempt us because that means he'd be watching us do something evil and it just cannot work. God does not tempt. He does allow us to be tested. And even as he allowed Christ to be tested, but never more than we're able to bear. And he always gives us a resource for victory in choosing the resource. James, before this part where he speaks of um, temptation, prior he was speaking on trials. Trials, God does allow. Trials do come from God, and they're given for the purpose of if we, through endurance, persevere through them, we will be made perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. They are for our good. We don't always like them. But he puts them in our lives to grow us, to, 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 to change us, to make us more dependent on who he is. Trials, as we're going to talk about, don't come outbound to us. They come from within out. Saying that is not good. That is not from God. So let's, let's keep going here. If God is not to blame, we can take that for face value. Who is? How about Satan? Should we start there? Is, is Satan to blame? Several decades ago, a comedian made famous the tagline, the devil made me do it. And the devil certainly does tempt us. We already read he tempted Eve in the garden. So Satan does have a hand in our temptations, but oftentimes Satan gets too much credit. See, this is important to understand. There must be something there for Satan's temptations to be effective. Verse 14. Interesting, James goes on and says, but each one is tempted. Each one, every individual is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. There's a, it starts with a but. Temptation doesn't come from God, but it does come from, well, it says when we are carried away and enticed, when we're dragged away, 
And mark this, you should underline it, maybe even highlight it in your Bible, his own lust. I mean, so what about you? We can be honest with ourselves again. Do we make it a habit to blame others for our sin? Holding God accountable for our choices? Or maybe secretly thinking we have a way out because the devil made us do it? The reality is if I could kick the person in the pants who's responsible for the most trouble in my life, I would be the one that wouldn't be able to sit. He uses some interesting words. It says carried away and enticed. I like these words. They're hunting words. The first one, carried away, literally means a baited trap. To bait a trap and, and, and have somebody come and catch it. The enticed, it's a, it's a hunting term also, but very specific to fishing. To literally catch using bait and a hook, a fish. James is giving us a very specific analogy saying, when, are you, when, when, when do we fall into sin? When we're allured, when we're beguiled, literally deceived, just like catching a fish with bait. And the problem is every person is tempted when the hook is baited or the trap is baited and we're lured away, when we're compelled away, when we're dragged away by our own, says, lust. These terms that sees the one being tempted as being lured deceptively and hooked and trapped into sin. That's what the world will do. I mean, let me ask you a question. How many of you gone fishing before? All right, we got some. So if I was going fishing and I was by the side of the lake, would this be fairly effective? Come here, fishy. Come on. I got plans for you. <laughs> Why not? Isn't very good bait, right? In the very essence of tempting, we don't want to show them the end result. This is what's going to happen if you hook on. But you see a fish do this, I mean, they're going to go the other way. And in the same way, temptations of this world aren't this obvious, are they? Oh, come here, we're going to really get you bad. Oh, this is going to hurt, cause a lot of suffering. Say, no, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a baited game. Just like, just like fishing. Even a hook. You go out, you could have a real nice pole and the right string, and would you just throw the hook in the water? Why? Fish aren't going to go for it. In fact, it's just the opposite. What you want to do is you take a gummy worm or whatever your bait is, and what do you try to do to the hook? Completely conceal it. The last thing you want to do is have anyone see the hook, but you want to dangle it out there. Man, this is going to be good. This is going to be fun. It's going to taste great. Come on. Come on. No problem here. I mean, think of the imagery James is giving us. The animals uh, are caught because the hook is baited. Because the bait looks good. And it looks attractive. It's inviting. And unfortunately, all the fish see is the bait. And instead of the anticipated pleasure, they grab a hold of that, and the pain of being captured, and even death, are right there. And so is it with temptation for us. It dangles out there, promising us a tasty indulgence of what this world has to offer. Man, it looks good. It doesn't look like a frying pan. Let me ask you a question. What does that? 
I mean, whose fault is that that that's going on? What pulls us so strongly to that bait? Is it, it's not God. Is it Satan? Well, let's get, no, not, not, not essence. Think about it. Satan might bait the hook. The world can bait the hook. Demons can bait the hooks. Men and women and a lot of folks can bait the hook. But what pulls us to that? What pulls us into that trap? What is it? And it says what? It's our lust. And that's the nature of man. That's our very fallenness. And notice, it doesn't say that he's just drawn away by lust, but it says of his own lust. It's very empathetic on this. His own lust emphasizes that we're not just talking about some generic term of lust, but each individual has his own particular bend, which is really the thing that lures the bait. Temptations are personal. Another translation would say, by his own evil desires. Literally, these temptations are tailor-made to trip us up. If you looked a page over in James chapter 4, he kind of talks about the same innerness within us. It says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire, the battle within you? That's where they come from. See, the reality is I have more trouble with Rob Selleck than I have with anyone else. And this is just the beginning process, a process that can only be described as the downward death spiral of sin. The desire to sin is already within us. If it wouldn't, or if it wasn't in us, I mean, sin wouldn't be all that attractive. It's easy to think that, well, sin is some sort of magnet, but the reality is we need to get on grips of where it comes from. It's more like the magnet is within us. They're just putting it out there as baited hooks. We're the ones, if we don't put it under control, which we'll talk about, will be dragged into them. Our desires are extremely powerful. That's where it all starts. Now, not all desires obviously are wrong. Many desires keep us alive, keep us healthy, make us uh, well-adjusted human beings. But even good desires taken to an excess can cause great harm. All right? The desire for food. The desire for sexual fulfillment. The relief of pain. All of these can turn into obsessions that literally control our lives. And temptations begin with the desire. Us being out there, seeing these things and desiring somebody. It's an emotional thing. So they what? It hides the hook. Tries to be enticing. We don't want to, they don't want to show us the consequence. Just like us fishing. It's a great analogy. We can learn a lot from it. In fact, personally, I love these types of analogies. I love digging in and seeing what does it mean? What can we learn? Why did he use that? They knew fishing back then. We know fishing now. So I went online, actually, and I typed in, what are some things we need to know being new fishermen? And I found an article. It was tips and tricks to fishing by the pros. I'm thinking, oh, this is great. So the first one, it starts off, somebody asks a question, how hard is it to catch a fish? I'm thinking, this is relevant. In this analogy, we're the fish. The world's the fisherman. And it says, if you do the right thing, it's really not that hard to get a fish. I'm thinking, oh, man. So what is that? The world knows. We know it in fishing. The world knows they spend a ton of money to research and figure out exactly what our tendencies are. What's going to make us draw in? This see subtitle changes that the world can do makes us more vulnerable. We've got to be on alert. This is the second thing I'm reading in this article. It says, what do you do if the fish aren't biting? I think, ah, that's a fair question. 
The answer, eh, just simply change bait, change location, or angle. Thinking, man, as a fish, that's true. Isn't that what this world does? Does it just let up? Oh, he didn't bite. He's fine. We'll let him go. No, it's just like fishing. That's why I use this analogy. What do you do? You, you go out at a different angle. You mix it up. And the world's coming at us like that. It was talking about how the fish like to hang out in their cribs. Never heard of that term, but I guess that's their homes, where they feel safe. And they're telling the fishermen, if you can get them in the state of where they feel safe, they're much more vulnerable. Out in open waters, they're on a higher alert. They're, they're, they're a little more skittish. But if you could get them where they feel safe in their crib, easy. So you got to find their cribs. So they're thinking, man, same thing with us as Christians. As soon as we kind of feel like, ah, oh, we're doing pretty good. And we let our guard down. And we become a little spiritual stagnant. Thinking, oh, I'm safe here. This is kind of becoming normal. I like this season of life. We've got to be on guard. You know, there's a lot of crossovers. It was saying how important it is to know everything you can about the fish that you're trying to catch. Know their habits, their uh, preferences, locations, even cor- little quirks. And if you do, it'll be so much easier to catch them. I'm thinking, of course, the world does that to us, man. The devil's doing that to us. It went on, this was kind of frightening, as I'm thinking of myself as a fish, thinking, man, this world's really equipped to come after us. It says, how important is it to set the hook? If you ever went fishing, of course, it's, their answer was very important, otherwise the fish will get away. Right? Because the fish are nibbling on it, just like us, man, nibbling on temptation, nibbling on sin, thinking that's not that bad. I'm not fully committing until the hook's set. Numbers 32, 23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. Thinking, wow, that hook is set. It will find us out. And sin will take us further than we were planning to go. And sin will keep us there longer than we were planning to stay. He's even talking about the design of the hook. And how important it is to keep it sharp. Singing, well, of course, I know this. It's got to be sharp. Why? The whole purpose of the hook is so it goes in easy. And doesn't come out. Hey man, James, this is a great God-inspired message you're giving here. This is exactly like sin. Designed to go in easy, but doesn't come out. Can't spit it out sometimes. He's even talking about <laughs> how oftentimes, and I even had this happen to me. I haven't fished much, but we're... You'll fish and catch a fish and you'll release it and then you'll catch the same one again. I've had that happen. And I'm like, man, that's just like me. Get caught up in something by the grace of God released and there I am again. Oh. Another thing I thought, thought was interesting, it was talking about trophy fish. And this is like, you know, the, the real professional fishing. And uh, they're saying that some of these trophy fish are 30 to 40 years old. That's an old fish. And they estimate that they've been casted for over 10,000 times over the lifespan. So these are the smart fish that got away, that made it, and now they are the trophy fish. They're the prize money fish. They're the ones that are going to make the magazine. And I'm still saying, wow, that's relevant. Because they're still being caught. Trophy fishes are still caught. I'm thinking, so 9,999 casts, they didn't bite onto it, but for some reason... The 10,000 cast snared them. 
Say, man, a lesson to be learned for us old and young and, and more mature. We got to stay on guard. What's Proverbs say? That the devil prowls around. That's a proactive prowls around like a roaring lion seeking one to devour. James is saying, be careful, guys. This whole fishing analogy is, is, is very accurate. And I was talking about this with my son yesterday about that, and we came to the conclusion, so he helped me make, this is what I call my, my hat of many temptations. Ethan made it. The reality is not like one, one person's fishing for us, but we're in Orange County, and all this is going around. All these things we talked about multiplied. I mean, right? You got Barbie Mermaid. But it's true. And we are constantly being bombarded. So it's what we talked about multiplied by our exposure here in Orange County, which is, 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 is massive. And John MacArthur writes, the problem is not the tempter without. The problem is the traitor within. Thinking, wow. There's a lot going on here. And now at this point in the passage where we're going to go, James is going to change his metaphor. He's going to move from the, the world of fishing into the process of human development, kind of going from bait to biology. Verse 15. This is what, so, so what we just talked about, when our desire with the, from the temptation, when we bite the hook, when lust conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, when it's full grown, it brings forth death conception leads to a birth which leads to growing up which leads to death the force of temptation literally has a life cycle of its own lust and sin have the ability to conceive and give birth and it's at that instant we must abort when we play around with temptation a conception occurs james says it's going to give birth to that sin and sin allowed free reign will grow it will develop but unfortunately it'll lead finally to death we could call it the life cycle of sin, or more accurately, the death spiral of sin. And it's disobedience. It begins with the desire. That desire moves to deception, and that dis deception moves to disobedience. Again, it starts with really our emotions. That's our desire. That's what we see. That's an emotional thing. They're coming after us, wanting us to look at it. And it goes to the intellect, and that's where we rationalize it. Or we have deception and it goes to our will which is our disobedience and the place to deal with temptation is at the point of desire at the very beginning it is the person who is able to control their emotional response he's the person that's going to deal with sin effectively we don't really want to deal with it at the end of the line but we want to go back to the beginning if our emotions are allowed to be exposed to that baited hook, realistically, we're going to have problems. We must consciously be aware that everything in our society is working on our emotions. All the dramatic things, all the movies, the television, the books, the music, the clothing, the billboards, the luring sights, the sounds, everything is there to attract our attention, to grab your emotion. Make no doubt about it. They're all a facade, though, just attended to allure us. So James says in verse 16, he moves on and says, Don't be deceived. Literally, don't 
wander away. It's actually written in, in the presence. Like this thing that's been going on that you've been being drafted and carried away and, and pulled apart from me. He says, stop it. Don't do that. It's not worth it. He says, my beloved brother. And I, I like that. I research it. It says, it's this meaning someone from the same womb. Here, James, get, James is given a pretty hard message. But he's saying, man, as a brother, like from the same womb. I love you, but be careful. Like talking to the church, don't be deceived. So the key to overcoming temptation is literally recognizing its source and how it's designed to ensnare us. And if we want victory, we must focus our attention not on ourselves, not even on this world, but on the Almighty. And we must focus on the doctrine of who God is, and that's what James does. He literally says, you want to be successful? Keep your focus on God. And look at verse 17. It says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He's saying there's simply two main principles being proclaimed here. Bad temptation does not come from God. He will never produce sin. And the second thing is only good things come from God. The good, the good, the good, and more good comes from God. We can come to the conclusion, so why in the world are we tempted by this baited hook? It says God's going to pour out blessings. If you want to win over the temptation of sin, we've got to go back to the character of God. See, it's important to resist temptation, but the key is refocusing. Because temptations begin with the inner thought. And we've got to change our thought. That's the way to victory. Focus on who he is, what he's done for us, what he's doing for us, and what he will do for us. Have you ever been driving and see somebody in their car? And you get a wave to them, they wave back. It's like, oh, it's so great to see that person, and that's neat. Or have you ever been in a situation where you're driving, you stop at an intersection right next to him, and you're waving like, hey! And they're just like, and you're like, hey! And you're kind of, mm. and then you really start making a motion and faces and doing everything. You feel like everyone at the intersection can see you but them. That's not such a bad thing for us to be in this world. Focused on God, these distractions saying, hey, over here. They're saying, nope, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on who he is. I've got my priorities. I'm going to keep my little nose in the book and in prayer and in fellowship. I mean, after all, this is the greatest love story written from start to finish, Old Testament, New Testament alike, where he uses words like, I want to adopt you. I want you to be my bride. And you think about it, the Bible, the number one thing he asks, he says, just love me. Love me. With all your mind, heart, soul, strength. So James gives us this awesome perspective as us, the fish, this world as the fishermen. As I was studying this, I came across a different passage and I want to share with you. Because that gives us this perspective, and this passage we're going to look at gives us a perspective of God, which I think is invaluable of this. So, knowing what we know now, I put it on the board. I know we normally don't do that, but I put it in New Living Translation. That's the, that's the translation we use in the Old Testament with the students, just so we can have some common language here. So, I wanna, what we've just talked about now, I want us to go through it with the perspective of what, what does God see in all this? Jeremiah 2, 2 through, th- two through 3. <clears throat> Go and shout this message to Jerusalem. This was to his people. This is what the Lord says, God speaking. 
I remember how eager you were to, to please me as a young bride long ago. How you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. It says, in those days Israel was holy to the Lord. The first of his children, all who harmed his people were declared guilty. And disaster fell on them. I, the Lord, have spoken. He says, do you remember when we were young and this all started? We were madly in love. Madly in love. I would lead, you would follow, and we just treasured each other. I would go in the wilderness, the barren land, and you would come after me. Remember that? In fact, it was so magical. Somebody stepped or harmed or said something against you, I'd strike them down. We were in love. You're devoted to me. He goes on, Jeremiah 2.5. Again, this is what the Lord says, God speaking. What did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far away? They worshipped worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. Literally saying, what happened? What went wrong? Why did you leave? This is God's perspective at us. We're just looking at this little baited hook. What, what's going on? You left me for these little small g idols? Why? I thought we had something going on here. Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13. It says, Has any nation ever traded its God for new ones? Lower G gods. <laughs> Even though they're not gods at all, yet my people have exchanged their glorious big G God for worthless idols. Look at verse 12. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay. He's saying the heavenly host look down and say, what is going on? Why have you guys been deceived and lured away and dragged off into your sinfulness? The heavenly host look down. We don't get it. It baffles us. It makes us shirk back in disbelief. In horror and dismay, says the Lord, for my people have done two evil things. One, They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water. He says, why'd you leave me? What went wrong? I was the fountain of living water, overflowing, giving you all the resources you need, everything you desired. I was here in abundance, and you got tempted and dragged away, and you went and dug holes for yourself so you could try to fill those holes with water? Is that's not foolish enough? They leak? They're cracked? Why? I loved you. We had it. Jeremiah 3, 19 through 20. And I thought to, my, to myself, I'd love, this is God speaking, I'd love to treat you as my own children. This is God's perspective when we fall into temptations and it looks so enticing. I think it's important to see what God thinks of us and his desire and love for us. I'd love to treat you as my own children. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land. He goes on, the finest possessions in the world. I looked forward to you calling me Father. And I wanted you to, to never turn from me. But he says, you have been unfaithful to me, you people of Israel. You have been like a faithless wife who leaves her husband. I, the Lord, have spoken. Wow. Oh, for me, that was powerful to sit there and think, it's not only what we see and what this world's trying to do, but there's a God factor here. We have a God that desperately loves us. And the real key to success to overcome this temptation that's coming at us nonstop is to fix our eyes on the goodness of who He is. 
the doctrine and the character of who God is. And that's what these verses are talking about, saying God is good. He is good because he gives good and perfect gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. He doesn't send temptation. He only sends good gifts. And the idea in, this, in James is that his gifts are continual. They come down and they don't stop. It's an unending succession of good gifts. Even when we're in the midst of trials and we're faced with temptations, it says God is good. Psalms 119 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. We need to remember God is good. We need to remember more than that, God is great. It says, from the, heaven, from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows? Literally declaring himself the father of every born-again individual. Now the Jewish mindset saw the heavenly lights as the sun, the moon, the stars, all the planets. And yes, God is creator of all things and stands above all things. But even the heavenly lights, they turn and they rotate. And they cause shift and they cause shadows. He says, not so with God. There might be a dark side of the moon, but there is not a dark side of God. He does not change. God is great. He is the father of lights. means he is completely, 100% reliable. Malachi says, I, the Lord, do not change. When things around us are shaking, we just don't know what to do. We can lock into the certainty of who God is. So God is good. We know that God is great. And God is a giver. God is the source of salvation, not temptation. It says he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. I know I'm glad that he chose to give me new birth. It says he did it through the instrument of his word, and that's exactly why we teach and preach the word as much as we can through every venue we have here. Temptation, it begins with desire, leads to deception, results in disobedience. Sin is the disobedience of God. There's two elements when that bait and that desire, when they join together, it says it gives birth. And that's bad, but it doesn't end there. And when sin is fully formed, it brings forth death. And yes, oftentimes when we sin, it brings a temporary period of fun. Let's admit it. Sometimes sin is, is, is very mm, appealing, but we ought to know it always leads to death. It might not immediately be apparent. If we all sinned and, and God did not strike us down at that very moment because we're under the grace of God, but we must, must not be misled about the ultimate result of sin and God's mercy. Just because God has not immediately judged our sin does not mean that God will not ever judge our sin. What we are currently living under is the mercy of God. And if we continue to sin and not respond to God's mercy by forsaking our sin, it says death will follow. And I want to clarify this. So we're not confused. James is not referring here to like a physical death. If he was, none of us would be alive. James is not referring here to a spiritual death. If he was, none of us could be saved. The fulfillment of our lust brings about in a believer's life a death-like experience. I would imagine most of you know what I'm talking about. That state where you've lost your joy, your hope. Max Lucado, in a book called No Wonder They Call Him Savior, describes the state. It says, guilt creeps in on cat's paws and steals whatever joy might flicker in her eyes. Confidence is replaced by doubt. Honesty is elbowed out by rationalization. 
Exit peace, enter turmoil. Just as the pleasure of indulgence cease, the hunger for relief begins. Our vision is short-sighted, and our narrow-minded life has now but one purpose, to find a release for our guilt. It's like Paul questioning, what a wretched man I am, who will set me free? Spiritually, death after sin. King David, after his sin with Bathsheba, he says, Lord, restore under me the joy of my salvation. That's what sin does. It steals our joy. Spiritually, it takes us away from the very essence of how God wants us to be here on earth. As believers, if we want to handle this correctly, we need to take a good long look at it. We need to analyze our temptations We need to understand where they're going to take us. Look at the consequences. Look at where we'll end up. And I think if we do, and if we cross-examine it by Scripture, these temptations, we're going to come to one conclusion, that they're just flat out not worth it. Each time we yield to temptation, we believe a lie, but worse than that, we live a lie. So James says, don't be deceived, my my dear brothers. Don't fall for it, reject it. When you see temptations coming, get away for it. Be warned and don't take the warning lightly. We must not take it lightly. Now the good news is that as believers, those that are born of God, we can successfully resist temptations. We can win over temptations. They don't have to defeat us. In fact, we've been set free by the power of the life of Christ within us. We're no longer slaves to sin. We now possess all the power we need to resist and reject sinful practices. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. In other words, it is the, first, the new birth that provides the power for living that we need. Everything we need to get through this life successfully in the way that God has planned for us, he will provide. Nothing is withheld. And insofar as temptation is concerned, we do have the following promise 1 Corinthians 10.13, this might be a good verse to mark down. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you will be able to bear it. Well, that's good news. God says he'll always make a, a way of escape. Sometimes the way of escape might just simply be to run. Get up and run. No matter what it is, sometimes he says, if, if it's not that, all the way to the other end, he'll give us the strength to, to sit underneath it and bear it. But he will provide a way. But remember, the presence of temptation is not a sin. They're not going to go away. We just need to deal with them. In fact, the struggle itself proves that God is very close to us. It is our sensitivity to sin, and actually that, that, that sensitivity is a gift of God's Holy Spirit for us. It's a sign of our salvation. There would be no inner battle if we were lost. So it's when we can sin without remorse we really need to be concerned. When we can sin without that inner tension, when it becomes easy, that's when we need to be alarmed. God says, don't be surprised. Rest assured it's not for me. You're going to have to battle it from yourself. This world's really good. They're really good. But focus on this. I'm good. And everything good comes from me. I'm great. I'm the giver of salvation. 
Remain focused on who Christ is. I will provide a way out. I have great plans for you. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and praise you for who you are, for being our Savior. Lord, for teaching us through James very clearly what we will have to face, but also giving us the strength and the encouragement in doing it in a kind, loving way to have us overcome it. Lord, to know that we are not defeated and trapped and ensnared by sin, but through your Son, we have victory over it. Lord, I pray for all of us this week that we remember these, that we apply them, that we live in a boldness, knowing that we are triumphant, that we are overcomers. But we pray for your strength. We can't do it alone. Lord, focus our eyes, focus our hearts upon you and what you've done for us. Watch over us this week, Lord. Protect us and bring us back next week. Lord, it's in your son's name we all pray and we all say... Amen. You guys have a wonderful week. Thank you.